A reading from the book of Leviticus 25. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your intended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. And from Luke 4, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, I, we're in a series on missions, and I've been on a lot of mission trips. I've gone on them since high school. And um, the longest missions experiences that I've had were two years that I spent in Italy and two months that I spent in Bosnia. In both cases, my primary role was church planting and evangelism. And so I, I saw my role as to do whatever it takes to share Jesus. And when I say whatever it takes, I got talked into doing some pretty strange things. 
So for example, I uh, was talked into doing an Olympic-style ribbon dancing routine. It's a, it's a long two minutes. Um, I found myself at one point following a guy who was in his underwear and on skis through the streets of Milan. Long story. Um, and I finally succumbed to my nickname, and I ran around a city dressed like a hobbit. That um, was a long summer. Um, whatever else you can say about me, I was committed. And why was I committed? It's because this is what I believed missions was. Direct evangelism, doing whatever it takes to share the gospel of Jesus through our words with people, and I was committed to doing this no matter the cost. And this is ultimately what missions was. It's the only thing that counted. Well, in the last few years, my perspective has changed a little bit. Um, as proof of that, tonight I am going to DIA, and my wife and I are going to fly to Cambodia um, for a couple of weeks to pursue or to explore life and ministry there in um, preparation for long-term mission service there. Now, part of what we're doing is training church planters and evangelists there, um, and so the, the proclamation and the spread of the gospel is absolutely central to what it is that we want to do. But also part of what we're doing is recognizing that the, the villages that these churches are in are very poor. And so we want to come alongside the Cambodian church and help it be a catalyst for economic development there so that these villagers can provide for their own needs. Um, we see this, this idea of development as, as an important piece of what happens when the kingdom of God enters into a new place. We're in a series called Rhythms Around the World, in which we're exploring missions here at Waterstone. We believe that missions is when we practice the three rhythms, transform, neighbor, and restore, in the church, but also in the community and to the very ends of the earth. Two weeks ago, Nick talked about how it is the responsibility of every follower of Jesus to be on mission for the kingdom. And then last week, he talked about the first of our missions focus areas, which is to love the city that we're in. And this morning, we're going to talk about the second of our mission's focus areas, the things that we've decided to rally around as a church, and that's development. Development is when we empower the poor and the marginalized in our community um, to enter back into the social and economic life of the society so that they can provide for their own needs. And this morning, I invite you to join me in the journey that I've been on the last few years as I've been having my understanding of what happens when we do missions broadened and expanded. Um, and, and I encourage you to do this journey. I, I don't know where the journey will lead you, whether it'll be to Cambodia or to Colfax or anywhere in between, but I encourage you to be on the journey because I do believe that we serve a God who is on the move, touching every part of society from the hearts of the non-believers to the slums of the poor, and that he calls us to join him in that journey. So this morning, we're going to look at God's heart for the poor and the marginalized from the book of Leviticus. Now, um, most of you probably are not saying, you know what I need more of? Sermons from Leviticus. <laughs> we see them as, we see Leviticus and the law in general as a bunch of outdated and confusing rules, and so the best we can do with it is say, that, that applied to Israel, but doesn't apply to us. But that misses the point, which is why did God bother giving the law in the first place? What was his heart behind that? And I think we see that uh, explained in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 
Moses is addressing the people, talking about the law, and starting in verse 5, he says this, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? And so when Israel practiced the law, there was supposed to be a certain effect. The surrounding nations were supposed to look in and say, oh wow, your God must truly be near you. You must have a wise and just God. And so the point of the laws was not necessarily, in all cases, the command itself. It was the effect that the command was supposed to have on all the people who were looking in so that they can see what a wise and just God that Israel served and say, I want to know how to be close to that God. When I was a a child growing up in Texas, my parents made me say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, always. Um, now, if you, if you leave the South or if you become an adult, then most people think it a bit curious if you keep saying ma'am and sir, or so they tell me. And uh, so it's not that all people in all times at all places are always supposed to say ma'am and sir, but it's that when I was of a certain age in a certain place, it had a certain effect partially so that I could get along better in life, and partially, and really more to the point, it reflected well on my parents when I did that. <laughs> yeah, parents, I know you do that. Um, nowadays, I know that it's not a timeless principle, because nowadays they could care less if I say sir or ma'am. Mostly they just want me to stop asking them for money. <laughs> so the, the point is that when the, the command itself is not the point, I guess is what I'm saying. It's the effect that the command has in a certain time and in a certain place. And it's the same with the law. In that time and in that place, when Israel carried out the law, it had a certain effect on the nations around them so that they would look in and say, what a wise and just God. I want to know how to serve that God. And so the question that we start with is not, does this apply today or not? The question that we start with is, how does this command show God's heart for the nations? We're going to practice that this morning with Leviticus chapter 25. We just heard a reading from that in which we um, heard that God commands Israel to observe a jubilee year every 50th year. Okay, so what is a jubilee year? Um, we get an explanation of that in um, verse 13, where it says, In the year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. That gets expanded in verse 39. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They're to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They're to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Let's get some historical background on this. When the Israelites first entered into the promised land, then all of the families were allotted a portion of the land. And land is how you survived. That's how you made your living. And if you didn't have land that was producing, then you had to sell yourself as a slave to others in order to continue to survive. So if your land doesn't produce, you fall into debt, you have to sell your land, and you have to sell yourself and your family into, um, as a slave to other Israelite families. In the year of Jubilee, 
The debts are canceled so that people can come out of slavery, go back to their land, and be reunited with their family. So no matter how hard things get, there's a mechanism in place in society that says you will be restored back to your land, you'll be restored back to the place where you can have self-directed work, not be dependent on others, and you can be reunited with your family. If the Jubilee is carried out, then there's two primary social implications. First, there is no permanent poverty. Yeah, things can get bad sometimes, but it can't be ongoing. If you are obedient, then the people will come together and they'll follow the Jubilee and people will come out of slavery and back into self-directed work and be reunited with their families. The second is what I just said. People will be reunited with their families. The Jubilee strengthens families. A lot of times families fall apart for moral reasons, but a lot of times families fall apart for economic reasons. They just can't make enough to keep them from selling the members of the family out to pay off debt. And so God says that when um, the family is strong, my will is more fully carried out. It recognizes the connection between economic viability and family strength. So what do we learn about God's heart from this passage? Well, we see that God will ask radical things of us in order to prevent ongoing poverty. We see in verse 55, the very last verse of this passage, God closes it this way. The Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Saying, God did not bring his people out of slavery in Egypt just so that they could then go be slaves to other Israelites. And God goes to great lengths to free his people from slavery in Egypt and from slavery to sin so that we can then go free others from the things that enslave them and keep them chained. Second, God has a heart for families. God wants families to remain strong. He recognizes the connection between economic viability and family strength, and he wants to do whatever it takes to keep families strong. And when the family is strong, God's will is more fully carried out uh, in our world. So, we see one more thing in this passage that I want to point out about who God is and what his heart is. Um, and it's in verse 23. It says, The Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I'm sorry, verse 23 says, The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. The land belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And God then gets to decide what we do with the things that belong to him. And we know that God has a special concern for the poor and the marginalized. And so if we are accumulating things for our own self, for our own power and our own benefit, and we don't use those things to carry out God's concern for the poor and the marginalized, and we rationalize it all by saying, I earned it all, so it all belongs to me anyway, and I get to do whatever I want with my stuff, then we are in direct opposition to God's will for our stuff. And the nations who are looking in on us have no reason to believe that we serve a wise and a just God. He's just the same as all the other supposedly, supposed gods who rule over equally unjust societies. What we do with our possessions is not just an economic statement. It is a theological statement about what we believe in God. So what do we do with this passage? We do what we can to empower people to come back into 
the economic and social life of the society so that they can provide for their own needs rather than be dependent on others. This is God's heart for us, and this is what we are to do. We are to carry out the jubilee, that God's heart behind the jubilee. That being said, most of us aren't going to do that. Most of us see these commands not as, not as an obligation, but as something that is threatening. Why do we not see this command as evidence of God's wisdom and justice and instead see it as threatening? In preparation for my trip tonight, I was um, subject to a full range of shots. Um, it was actually only three, but they hurt really bad. Um, a lot of us see shots as threatening. Um, but if we get them, they actually protect us from a variety of exotic diseases that would be far more unpleasant than a little poke in the arm. And so while shots seem threatening, they are in fact a very wise thing to do. And I think that with the correct perspective, the same is true of the Jubilee. It seems threatening to us and the things that we want to hold on to, but it's actually wise and, and frees us. The problem is that when we look at the passage, all we ever see are the socioeconomic implications of what the Jubilee requires of us. But we're missing, if that's all we see, we're missing the entire foundation of the whole passage. So let's go back and take a look at what we missed the first time. Um, the passage starts in verse 8. I'll read there. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Okay, so God doesn't say every 50 years or so have a jubilee. I don't really care as long as you eventually get around to it. No, it's, it's in the cycle of the Sabbaths. It's this culmination of the Sabbath cycles that are happening. Think of the hands of a clock. You've got the minute hand, and when it makes a full rotation, it moves the hour hand. When the hour hand makes a full rotation, it activates the cuckoo. Um, it's the same with the Sabbath. You've got the weekly Sabbath. After enough of the weekly Sabbath, then they add up to a Sabbath year. And when you get seven Sabbath year, then it activates the Jubilee. Somehow or another, Jubilee is the culmination of practicing the Sabbath cycles. And so if we can understand what the purpose of the Sabbath is and enter into those cycles, then that should free us to see the Jubilee as a command we can joyfully obey. So what are the purposes of the Sabbath? I'm going to list three here. Uh, the first is the one that we most often think of. It's to rest from work. Um, when we observe the weekly Sabbath and we enter into the rhythm of work and rest that God modeled for us in creation, it's our way of showing that work is good, but it is not ultimate. And so we step away, we tangibly show this by stepping away and resting and worshiping the God who is ultimate. The second thing that Sabbath shows us, or that does for us, is it deepens our trust. You see, if we're not working to meet our needs, then we have to trust that God is going to meet our needs when we are obedient to him. And so if we're just in the cycle of working for our needs all the time, we can come to the belief that it is actually we who provide for our own needs rather than God who is the source of all good things. And so we show that we believe this and that God will take care of us when we are obedient by stepping away and not working. And then the third thing that Sabbath shows us is that God has a heart for the poor and the marginalized. Exodus 23, 11. But during the seventh year, the Sabbath year, 
Let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it. Deuteronomy 15.1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Deuteronomy 15.12. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. Sabbath is a time to care for the marginalized among us by feeding and freeing the slaves and the poor. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus loved healing on the Sabbath. A friend of mine suggested that Sabbath is a lot like arriving at a mountain summit. You get to rest, you could stop looking at the trail right below you, and you can look up and out at God's creation. You get the chance to reflect on the work that you've just done and the work you have yet to do. Mountain summits are an unusually generous place where fellow travelers pass around water and snacks, if you're lucky, beer. And I think that Sabbath is, is similar. Um, we get to rest. We work hard to get to Sabbath, but then we rest and we have a new perspective on the work we've done, the work we're about to do, and the God who has made it all possible. And that frees us to be generous with our fellow travelers. And if you're lucky, there's beer. Um, that illustration doesn't connect with you, then it's probably because you're in church on a Sunday and not climbing a mountain, so <laughs> good for you. Um, so if we enter into the Sabbath rhythms, if we allow God, if we, if we rest from work to show that it is not ultimate, if we rest from work in order to care for others, if we enter into these jubilee cycles or these Sabbath cycles, then jubilee is the natural culmination of that. God transforms us and we realize we do have enough and that we can enter into the lives of those who do not. And then we can work to create a more just society that uh, God transforms us and that radical generosity and justice flow out of us when we trust and rest in God's promises. Sabbath also shows us that our, our good works must be rooted in God's character or they, or they aren't anything. Um, if we're just doing good works for the sake of it, then that's empty. Uh, Matthew Paris is a British journalist. He's also an atheist. And, but after a trip to Africa, he came to this surprising conclusion. Read a quote from him. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. So Paris has the courage to come to an observation to state it, even when it challenges his worldview. And he recognizes that without there being transformation, without God's character being at the foundation of every good work that we do, then it's not sustainable for us and it's not transformative for those that we are going to. We need, um, our development needs to be holistic, to reach into the spiritual as well as the physical lives of those that we are around. And so I ask you, are you ready to go out and practice a radical jubilee generosity? And if not, why not? Is it that you feel that you don't have enough to spare? Does the problem seem too big? Do you believe that the poor don't deserve your help? Whatever it is, I think God wants to free you from that. And so enter into the Sabbath cycle so that God can free you 
from this focus on yourself and that you can see that you do have enough, that God is enough, and then you can turn out radical generosity to the rest of the world. Okay, so the Old Testament talks about Jubilee as the culmination of the Sabbath cycles that result in this radical act of empowerment for the poor and the marginalized in society. But that was Israel. How does that apply to us today? I think the Bible talks about Jubilee in a way that brings us right up to today. Earlier, we heard a reading from Luke chapter 4 in which Jesus preaches a sermon in Nazareth. Let's read that again, picking it up in verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, Jesus found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. The passage Jesus is reading from is Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. When Isaiah talks about the year of the Lord's favor in which the captives are freed and the poor hear good news, he's talking about the Jubilee. But he's saying that the Jubilee actually points forward to this messianic character who's going to come and that this Messiah is going to have a reign that is known as a Jubilee. Enter Jesus. He reads the passage and then gives a commentary on it. Commentary is one sentence, but it is a game changer. Verse 21, he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Sound the trumpets, because the jubilee begins now. Jesus is the one about whom Isaiah prophesied, and he is announcing a new jubilee, not the literal jubilee of Leviticus 25. It's bigger and better. It's a new era. Jesus is establishing a kingdom in which hunger and poverty and oppression or chains are on their way out. And so what do we do as Jesus' followers? We get to work, announcing that same jubilee, preaching good news to the poor, not just the good news that Jesus died for our individual sins, but also the good news that Jesus died and was raised again to free us from the individual, societal, and generational sins of greed, of insecurity, of pride that allow so much injustice and poverty to go on in the first place. We do this for the sake of of uh, the poor who will know that God's kingdom has come and that he is not content in that kingdom to let anyone go hungry. We do this for our own sake so that we can enter into the liberating Sabbath cycles that free us from the chains of oppression, of materialism, of selfishness, and we do this for the sake of the nations who are looking in and asking if the God that we serve is truly wise and just. Jubilee is to be our mission because Jesus has proclaimed it. And so that brings us to the second of our mission's focus areas, development work. See, we see development as a, a modern way of framing what the Bible talks about as jubilee. How does it work? First, you identify what are the things that are keeping people on the margins of society, that keep people from being able to enter into the social and economic life of the society. That could be debt, could be immigration status, it could be a disability, it could be poor choices made years ago, it could be people taking advantage of other people, but we identify what that is. 
Second, we get people involved in the process of development. Um, you don't just do things for the poor, you do things with the poor. You get them involved. You say, what assets are you bringing to the table? What would you get excited to be a part of? And then third, you help identify a path around the obstacles so that they can leverage their assets in order to provide for their own needs. It's something that you do with people, and it allows, it empowers people to come back into the social and economic life of the society and provide for their own needs. So, how do we get involved as a church? I'm going to have a lot of applications for you. It may seem overwhelming, but I don't want anyone to leave that door and say, well, there wasn't anything for me, so I guess I don't have to get involved. Um, we have, we, Waterstone supports a lot of missionaries who are doing development work around the world. For example, we have missionaries in Spain who are doing language classes and job training for immigrants. We have uh, workers in Central Asia who are doing development work among an unreached people group. We have uh, missionaries in Mozambique who are starting jobs there in those villages. Um, next week, we'll have a missions expo before and after the services. You can go, you can learn about the missionaries that Waterstone supports, get prayer requests for them, get involved in their lives, financially support them, whatever it is that God is calling you to do. And maybe, maybe God is calling you to go as a missionary. You know, in the U.S., we have uh, an unprecedented world stage where a lot of the nations can see um, how good God is from the way that we act, if we do, in fact, act that way. But there are still some nations and some peoples who will not know how good and wise and just our God is unless someone goes and lives among them. Would you dare ask God if he is calling you? Another way you can get involved is through compassion. It's one of our key ministry partners. We talk about it a lot. Larry explained how the program works, and we're going to watch a video here in a few minutes um, about that. Um, but we have the Child Sponsorship Program, which is breaking the chains of poverty across the globe. And <clears throat> excuse me, um, we have partnered with St. Luke's Church in Saranka, Uganda. Um, and so as you leave here, you can, if you've never sponsored a child or you would like to sponsor another, we'll have a table out in the hub where you can pick up a child. As Larry said before, 15 of those children are from Soronko um, and have just come out of the child survival program that you so generously supported at our Christmas Eve offering. Um, if you would like to take your involvement with Compassion to the next level, then you can consider going on one of our trips to Uganda where you can meet your child, where you can... Uh, participate further in that partnership with St. Luke's there in Soronko. Uh, another ministry partner that we have is Plant with Purpose. Uh, they have identified as one of the primary reasons for poverty in a lot of villages around the world that when times get tough, some of the villagers in, in certain countries will cut down the trees, sell it for firewood, but that harms the farmland, which then produces less harvest, which makes them go further into poverty, so they cut down more trees, which further harms the land, and this cycle keeps going. And so Plant with Purpose is coming in, helping restore the trees, and teach sustainable agricultural practices, all in connection with a local church that's meeting the, the whole needs of the people who are in those villages. Our student ministry takes trips to Plant with Purpose every year in the Dominican Republic, and anyone is welcome to apply to go on those trips. We also have several local ministries that we partner with. Um, just to name a few, uh, Mile High Ministries has a few things that fall under it. There's the Joshua Station, 
which, takes, which helps people navigate the really rocky period between homelessness and housing, um, gives them community, support, resources that they need over the course of two years to get people firmly planted in housing so that they can um, plant there with their family. Another thing under Mile High Ministry is a legal aid clinic where lawyers volunteer of their time to help people navigate legal obstacles that they couldn't afford otherwise. Um, also, there's the Issachar Center, which takes young adults from the inner city and apprentices them so that they can go back to the low-income families that they've come out of and do development work. It's empowering people from low-income communities to empower people from low-income communities. It's a really cool model. Other inner-city ministries that we partner with, there's Inner City Health Center, which provides low-cost health care to low-income families. We've got Denver Street School, which takes uh, teens, at-risk teens who are not thriving in a traditional high school environment and helps them get a high school diploma. Um, Denver Street School also recently started a school that, uh, for girls coming out of sex trafficking so that they can have the tools and resources they need to enter back into society. Um, we partner with Crossroads of the Rockies, which has a whiz kids tutoring program for kids who are behind grade level to help get them back so that they're not already behind everyone else, even as early as elementary school. Lots of inner city ministries that you can get involved in. Again, next week at the Missions Expo, a lot of these ministries are going to be represented. You can go, you can meet someone, and you can sign up and you can get involved there. Something is stirring inside of you, but you just feel like you need to learn more. We've got a few classes coming up. Um, for the four weeks, uh, four Sundays in February, we'll have an intro to Islam class. For the four Sundays in March, there's an intro to missions. And then in the fall, we'll roll out Perspectives, which is a longer, more in-depth look at missions if you really want to get your hands dirty and some stuff. And then you can make up your own thing. Um, can, you, can your business create jobs for marginalized people? Teachers, can you teach a skill to somebody to help them be more viable on the job market? Um, mothers, fathers, daughters, sons, can you come alongside and mentor families and help them stay strong, knowing that family is one of the greatest protections against poverty? Whatever you do, if you're a, an electrician or a, a lawyer or a politician or a plumber or a mail carrier, or a computer programmer, whatever it is, how can you leverage the things that you know, whether you get paid for it or not, but the things that you know and the things that you do, the resources, the knowledge, the skills that you have to do development work here in our community and around the world. That being said, can I confess something to you? Um, I'm scared to get on that plane tonight. Um, I'm scared that I'm going to get to Cambodia and I'll just hate it. But I'm also scared that I'll get there and I'll know that it's right because then I'm going to have to move far from family, endure culture shock. I'm going to have to live among the poor, which honestly makes me feel vulnerable in a way that I've protected myself from up until now. But just as Nick talked two weeks ago, we have no choice but to be on mission for him. And for that, I am glad, because I never feel more alive than when I stop seeing myself as the center of the universe and start seeing myself as part of God's global plan for restoration. You know, even as we were worshiping here this morning, I was thinking through my sermon and thinking through all the things I didn't do, how much time I took away from preparing, how much time I wasn't praying for this. And God spoke to me and he said, my grace is enough for you. And that is true in the sense that we are sinners 
and God is enough for us, but that is also true that when we go into dangerous and vulnerable ministries supporting the poor and the needy, God is enough for us. You get what I'm saying? Not only are we required to respond to the call of God to go out into the world and to empower others to meet their own needs, but we get to respond to the call We get to be the ones that God uses to make the up there come down here. When you go out those doors and you sponsor a compassion child or you get involved in an inner city mission, uh, inner city ministry, or you become an overseas missionary or you create jobs or you do whatever it is for development work, then you become the means by which the kingdom is rendered visible. What you do has global implications and it has eternal implications. And if you don't get involved, not only are you being disobedient, but you are missing out. So enter into the Sabbath cycles. Rest from your need to achieve. Rest from all of the work. Trust that God is going to provide and then get to work because God has established his jubilee and we as a waterstone want to be a part of the jubilee that Jesus has announced. So, are you in? We're going to watch the video about compassion which talks about the partnership that we've had with compassion, the effect that it's having, and how you can get involved. And then afterwards, I'll give us the benediction. May we, the people of Waterstone, be committed to the heart of God. May we be committed to development, to proclaiming a jubilee so that the poor will know that the kingdom has come, that we will be free from our selfishness, and the nations will know what a wise and just God you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.